Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they will do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogue, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' house houses and for a pretense make long prayers therefore you will receive a greater condemnation woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte and then he when he is one you take him you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves woe to you blind guides who say whoever swears by the temple it is nothing but whoever swears by the gold of the temple he is obliged to perform it Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may, all, may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them will kill, you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, 
that on you may come all the righteous bloodshed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your word. Would you speak to us now as only you can? We yield our hearts to you. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be made more like Christ as a result of it by your grace and by your Holy Spirit. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I remember the first time I read about these Pharisees. I was shocked. I was like, who are these chumps? You know, who are these guys? You know, who are, they're, they're so, I mean, just unbelievably bad. <laughs> you just, and then as you learn more and as you study the Bible more, and more importantly, as you get to know yourself and your own issues, and we all have issues, you realize that we have a lot more in common with Pharisees at times than we would originally like to admit. The Pharisees were, were the very, very respected religious leaders of the day. There were more than just the Pharisees. There were the Sadducees and the scribes and the zealots. And there's, there's a bunch of different groups. But these are the ones that were more respected in the eyes of the people. There was about 6,000 of them in that day. They were not professional clergy. They were working men. But they studied and studied and studied and studied and so forth. And, and, the, and they were supposed to be the ones in part to lead the people in Judaism. And God's going to hold them into account related to their example and who they, who they were, what they were about, how they misled people and so forth. And so, you know, they had been around a little while. I mean, they had some experience. They had been around since like uh, 150 years before Christ. The word Pharisee means a, a separatist. So they originally wanted to be separated from the other religious leaders and they wanted to be separate from religious compromise and, of course, worldly compromise. And so it started out probably as a great thing. But as we know, over time, good ideas and well-meaning ideas can be polluted over time, especially when man's involved and so forth. So Jesus, as we've seen, as we've gone through this Gospel of Matthew verse by verse, we've seen that basically they were the main ones. I mean, they, they ganged up on him. We've seen that, uh, you know, the Herodians and the Sadducees, they, they've all taken their turn. But the Pharisees seem to be related to the, the percentage of of opposition, they seem to have the highest percentage of representation on the organized opposition. And so he he is clashing with these and they, and they were the leaders and God had expectations. And we've gone over in the last few times that we've studied, we've seen it start with God talking about uh, the, excuse me, it talk, you know, talking about the, the, the bad fruit, you know, the parables that were directed to them 
the, the fig tree that was cursed, that he cursed, symbolizing the nation of Israel and cleaning out the money changers and so forth, all these parables and so forth. And he just keeps holding them accountable. Last week we saw him speak about parables related to the wedding feast that, that they wouldn't go to. And they were, they were basically looked at as those that are coming to a wedding feast without a wedding garment, without, in, you know, related to our spiritual wedding feast that we're going to have in heaven. They weren't, they were coming in their own righteousness and so forth. He's just, He's in this last week of his life. He's in just a few days. He's going to be crucified and they're going to be responsible for that in many ways. And he's going day by day. He's about to really pour into his disciples. He's been doing that as well. But he, he's just continuously dealing with these guys at the very end and he's trying to reach them. He really is. In fact, in Acts 15 and other places in the book of Acts, it actually says those that are still part of the sect of the Pharisees that were believers, that were disciples. So they came to Christ. And, and most of them came to Christ after the cross and the resurrection, but they came to Christ. And so he knew that. And he never gives up on anybody. He's, he's proclaiming judgment in the sense that if they keep going this direction, that, they're, that they are going to be in an eternal, eternal lake of fire and so forth. But there is a chance for them to, to repent. So he's going to be dealing with with that. Now notice what he's speaking to in verse 1. It says, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples. Everyone was supposed to hear this. This wasn't just directly to the Pharisees. And you know, we can just pass over and miss it as we read this, that it's not just, he's not just speaking to Pharisees. Jesus wants the Pharisees within the multitude to hear it. And he will address them directly from within the multitude. So he wants them to hear it, but he wants his disciples. And some could say, more importantly, <laughs> the disciples to hear it because they would have a much greater influence related to the kingdom of God and could potentially infringe upon or work against what God wanted to do by having the wrong kind of heart than the Pharisees would because their influence was going to wane, but the disciples' influence was going to exponentially grow. And God knew that. So he's speaking to disciples too, both then and now. He's speaking to his disciples now, which is us, those of us that know him. And so it's important for us to know that it's not just for them. It's not just, okay, yes, he, they were the ones that were the opposition and he spoke horribly against their, what they did and what they were about, but it really has no application to me. Oh, yes, it does, because we have a Pharisee in all of us. There's no amens coming around, but I'm sure that you agree with me. There, you know, there's a Pharisee in all of us. And, and so we're going to look at 13 characteristics of Pharisees today that are not good. <laughs> and I remember being trained and so forth related to leadership and all of these things. And I had eight mentors that the Lord bla um, graciously blessed me with. Tim that we saw up here is one of the eight that God placed in my life. Pastor Chuck was one. There's, there's, a, there's a handful of them. And I was, it was just pounded in me about unhealthy leadership and, and what a true leader looks like and all of that. And Matthew 23 was a main text for many of them to help us to see what it looks like to not be, a, a, you know, to not be a bad leader. But it's applicable to every disciple because we are affecting people's lives. We are representing God as ambassadors of Christ to the world. In the Hebrews, it says that there's the priesthood of all believers. Or maybe it's Peter, but it's in one of those. That the New Testament. There you go. You know, the priesthood of all believers. And a priest represents God to the people. 
and people to God. No, there's no office of priest anymore, but there is the priesthood of all believers where we represent to the world God. And so we have to represent the world correctly. So in that, the Pharisees were supposed to represent and point to the Messiah appropriately when He came, and they didn't, and they were all about all these other things, and they were guilty. So too, as we are ambassadors to, to the world and representing God to the world, we can stumble them. We can be hypocrites. We can be all these things, and we have to watch out. Uh, you know, We have to be on guard against that. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, we're told in Galatians. And it's perfect that these Pharisees and religious leaders were on the scene being about what they were about. So in the fullness of time, there were the Greek roads, or the Roman roads rather, that Paul would travel to bring the Gospel. There was the Greek language, which is so nuanced that it's so specific that there was so much less misunderstanding related to the Scriptures because everybody knew Greek and it's ten times more expressive than what we're used to. But also, I believe it includes the fact that these Pharisees were there on the scene being the perfect antithesis to the kingdom of God, to holiness, to being other-centered, to be focused on the heart. And so it was perfect that they're there. It's perfect for God to allow His Son to come during this time. Now, Pharisees also represent in a lot of ways we can relate to them because of our sinful nature. We don't need help from Pharisees to be all these unhealthy things. I don't know about you, but I don't need any help. So we can have self-focus. We can have hypocrisy. We can major on the minors. We can be engaged in religious ritualism, especially if we have a background where we just kind of went through the motions religiously. We can carry that into today and just go through the motions outwardly, have our heart be completely disconnected from an intimate, an intimate relationship with Christ, but we're going through the motions and everybody from without or around us can look at us and go, everything's fine, they're spiritual giant, all these things, you know, but we know in our hearts we're a million miles away from God, but we're going through the motions. So our flesh needs to be confronted and also pride. Those Pharisees are very prideful. See, and pride means to see yourself above. And God is always working against our pride. Many times, pride and kind of incapacitates us to see it in ourselves. And we need the Holy Spirit to directly deal with us or other peoples in the people in the body of Christ to, to have, be lovingly appropriate and say something to us that helps us to see we're being prideful. And we need to allow them to, to do that. So He has a lot to say related to you know warning us about these things. So let's look at verse 2. Verse 2, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So that's the first characteristic, that they love spiritual authority. They love to sit with authority in places. They want that spiritual preeminence. And that, you know, many people believe there was a real seat of Moses in a synagogue because it, it broadly means that they were the ones that interpreted the law and said what the law uh you know, meant and so forth and, and everything. But I believe there, at least in, I know in the Middle Ages and so forth, there had been, eventually there was this seat that was called the seat of Moses. It may have happened in that day. People, you know, argue about that. I'm not interested in that. The point is, they liked that place of authority. So we have to be careful about whatever position we hold in the body of Christ, whatever place of influence we have, to not relish that 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 position of influence as if we're something now. You know, some people want to serve in the body of Christ because 
they never was it were able to do anything in the world and now they see this now we i can have significance and now and that's great god wants us to be blessed he wants to use us you have a sense of significance in all of our lives he wants to bring that in the sense of our calling we all have a calling a place to serve but we can't relish authority we can't relish that and be like be lifted up in pride because they love that verse three therefore whoever they tell Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. So they did the, the second characteristic is that they said to obey them, but they didn't follow, they didn't lead by example. Pharisees did not lead by example. They just said they needed, people needed to do this, but they didn't do it themselves. And that's, God's calling on all of our lives to lead by example, to, to say, not only do I believe this, but this is what it looks like to live that out. Now, how many unbelievers need to see that in our lives? A lot. God is so much more concerned many times in a situation with an unbeliever on how we act towards them instead of what we say. You know, there's an expression, you know, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. That's what, what, that's what they're saying. They're saying, you know, live it out. And that's true. I believe that. But we also need to open up our mouths and preach that gospel because faith comes by hearing. So that salvation, that desire, and that, that recognition that I need to be saved comes by someone preaching that gospel. And God produces faith for salvation as a result of that. Verse 4, For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. So that's the third characteristic. They put unhealthy loads on people. Man-made rules. That's what they were all about. All these man-made rules, and they're putting all these burdens on people that God never intended, and then they don't even help them with how to, how to use that to become more godly. And the reason why is because it couldn't make them more godly because God didn't, didn't tell them to engage in it in the first place. But they just, they put all this burden on people and then they don't do, make any effort to help them with that, those burdens and that religious, um, activity and so forth. Verse five. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. The, the fourth characteristic is that they, they do things to be seen by men. And that's, that's what he says right here. All their works they do to be seen by men. And they had phylacteries, these boxes with parts of the law written on them. They'd wear them on their forehead or they'd wear them on their wrist. They still do today. When you go to Israel today, the Hasidic Jews, they will, you'll see them walk around with a little box on their forehead or on their wrist and, and everything. And they just figured, you know, if the bigger it is, the better, you know, to just show how spiritual I am. Like, look at this. I have this massive, you know, Amazon box with a smiley face on it walking around, you know, look how spiritual I am. It's like the bigger the Bible, the more spiritual. I mean, I don't think so. I mean, we can have a massive family Bible and carry that thing around and, and not be a godly example, not be mature. It's kind of the, the same thing, but outwardly they could project something. That's the issue projecting something about yourself that isn't reality just so you can have people respect you is very dangerous. So the question is, why do I do what I do for the Lord? Do I do it for accolades? Do I do it for leadership to notice? Do I do it because I'm trying to get some title, which he's going to get to in a moment? Or am I doing it because I love God and I love his people? And I don't care if anybody notices. I'm going to serve because I want to serve. I have a heart 
to serve. That should be the, the true motivation. Remember, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13 that if I do anything, even allow my body to be burned as a martyr, and I'm not doing it in love, it counts as nothing. So that's, that's the key. We can't do things to be seen by men. Verse 6, they love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. They love the best spot. So that's number five. It's like you love, a characteristic of a Pharisee is that you love the, the best for yourself. Whatever it is, you love, I'm going to have the best parking spot. I'm going to have the best seat no matter where I am. I'm going to, I want to be greeted. I want the best greeting. And what is this little greeting that you're saying? You don't know who I am. I'm Rabbi so-and-so. You need to greet me the same way. If any leader commands that you call them a certain title, take off. Gone. Gone. Because they're getting something from the title. We're going to get to that in a second. They're getting something from that. And and so it, God isn't into titles. And He isn't into honoring. He isn't into honoring in, in many ways if it's done appropriately. But He's not into having us put ourselves first. He talked about at one point to, to take the lesser seat. Remember that? When he, when he shared that? And let the guest of honor exalt you so that you don't go to the, the, the place of honor and then he say, oh no, your, your seat's better to be at the other side of the table and then you have to be humbled in front of everybody. Just take the lesser seat. Take the lesser parking spot. Take the, you know, we, we get in church so we get tied to our seats. This is my spot. And I hear people say, they're sitting in my seat. Well, I don't see your name on it. And you better not put a name on it. <laughs> you know, mix things up. Sit, sit around with someone new that you never met before. We don't own anything, you know. And so it shouldn't be about us. It shouldn't be about getting the best. And Jesus wasn't like that. See, Jesus wasn't any of these things. He didn't have to be at the center or put, try to put himself first. He said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Verse 8, But you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. So the sixth characteristic is Pharisees love titles. Power-hungry and self-focused leaders obsess and enjoy religious titles. And I don't know really that there's any place where someone insists in the New Testament to be called something or even, you know, when Paul would write to a church, he would say, Paul, an apostle. He didn't say Pastor Paul. You know, I mean, not, not saying that's bad or whatever, but he, he's focused on what his calling is, who he is, not what his title is. I remember when I was taking martial arts, don't laugh now. <laughs> don't not don't laugh. It wasn't sumo wrestling, don't worry. Uh, but you know, it was a long time ago. It was a long time ago when I took it. So yeah, it, it was a better fit. No one laughed then about the idea of me doing martial arts. So, but I remember learning in um, in my karate class that because everyone's a focus on the belts, the belts, the belts. Got to get this next belt and all that. And I remember them telling us, you know, the belt doesn't make you. You make the belt. And that was like a Jedi mind trick on me at 19. I'm like, wow, that, that's weird. That's true. And it's the same way. The, the calling 
The, the title doesn't make the calling. The calling makes the title. And there really even shouldn't be a title, honestly. There really shouldn't be a title. Just There's got to be a, a way to designate things, but it would be fine with me if all titles went away and we just knew each other by names you know, instead of all these things. I understand people want to show respect. I understand that and all of that. But we have to be very careful with those things. The word rabbi means great one. At, the, at its root, it means great one. So maybe God doesn't want you to be called great one, you know, if you're, if you're a Jewish leader. You know, we, we talk about father. How many of us have called a religious man father before? I'll raise my hand to that. I don't know how they get around this, honestly. I really, I mean, it's they're reading, the, the, for the most part, the same Bible. He's not talking about physical fathers, right? That's obvious. I mean, in, in Hebrews chapter 12, he talks about our, the writer says our fathers disciplined us as they saw fit. So he refers to our earthly fathers as fathers. He's talking about spiritual fathers. And I've, and it's not just Catholicism, but it's Protestantism. There's people that say he's my spiritual father or whatever. And I just think that's dangerous. I think Jesus wants us to focus on one heavenly spiritual father and that's it. We can call people a lot of other things, but I think we should stay away from that. And the same with teacher here. There's one teacher. Now we have the gift of teaching in the New Testament and so we can say, yeah, they teach and so forth. But to call someone, come up and call them teacher, um, I think that's probably unnecessary there. Again, Paul said Paul an apostle. Peter said Peter an apostle and bondservant. They, they weren't insisting, at, for sure, they weren't insisting titles. Uh, but we need to just let our calling be our calling. And I know that some of this is very you know, ministering to some of you, because I know many, many of you have been through spiritual abuse. And that's why a lot of this chapter will ring so true in terms of you seeing some bad examples and some of these things and so forth. How many are going, yes, you know, yeah, a lot of hands, a lot of hands going up. So this is our protection. This is our protection. God's word. He's the one that gets to define what it means to serve and so forth. So we need to be careful about that. I, I rarely refer to myself as Pastor Pat, unless it's convenient for something or has a purpose to it. And I usually just refer myself as Pat. I don't know why that's a problem for some people, but sometimes it, it is. So we shouldn't get wrapped up in titles. Verse 11, But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And he who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. See, all these things, they, they self-claimed these things. They claimed them themselves. They claimed these titles. They claimed the seat of Moses. They claimed how they treated people. They, they, they took that upon themselves. They were self-called. God didn't call them to do any of these things or He wouldn't be rebuking them. And the most dangerous leaders are self-called leaders. We have to be careful because they need to be have a, a track record of, hum, of humility and a track record of not caring about titles not, and being a servant and, and being the one that leads by example. Jesus washed feet. If anyone wasn't a, <laughs> didn't belong doing something that would be serving, it would be the Lord Jesus and He washed their feet in John 13. And He said, if I wash your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. And, and so that's any godly leader or any of us that lead in terms of being an example in this world, people need to see servants. They're blown away when they see people serve. They're just not used to it. And it's hard for us to be a servant. And I remember my uncle, we were at a, we were at a family meeting. He doesn't know the Lord and, um, you know, but I respect him. He's an older 
relative. He's an uncle. And we were having this gathering at someone's house and it was in the backyard and there was some dog poop there. And he goes, Patrick, pick up that dog poop and throw it away. <laughs> I'm like, inside I'm going, you, what's, you know, I think you could, you know, I mean, you're not, <laughs> why? I mean, my back works, your back works, you know, I mean, what, why me? You know, and, and the Lord just really said, you need to do that. You need to be a servant, not even question it. You know, and so I read, I didn't do it. I had something I didn't use my, you know, but I picked it up and threw it away. And, and God was blessed by that. Even though he, my uncle didn't know what was going on in my heart. He didn't, he didn't make this big spiritual impact. I was a servant and, you know, uh, against my will, but I was a servant. And, uh, you know, that's that sometimes it's necessary to, to serve and no matter what situation that we're in. But notice he says that he who exalts himself will be humbled. See, God's the one that promotes. There's no path. We don't purposely lay a path out for how to be, go into leadership because I don't want people to be doing things because they, I don't know their motives at that point. I'd rather just watch them interact with the body of Christ, notice their gifts, see their servant's heart, and then let the Lord speak related to what they should do or shouldn't do. But I don't want to have a, 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 you know, connect all the dots and this is what happens because first of all, I don't know how God's leading and going to lead. And I want to see who they really are without anybody being under a microscope or thinking that they're under a microscope. So it's, I think it's wise, and I think the Lord is gracious with that. Now he says here, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now we think of woe as when we're on a horse. Whoa, you know, it's not pretty when I get on a horse. Um, well, it doesn't seem to work for what just, they just keep going. But anyway, um, woe here is, you know, it's kind of the same when you hear, uh, the vernacular sometimes in Jewish circles, they say, oy vey, you know, that's what it is. That's what this is. This, that's what this woe is. It's, 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 it's a word that is talking about pain when you really study it. Jesus is not cursing the scribes and Pharisees. He's, he's expressing pain. He's basically saying this hurts. It's painful to see what's coming for you. Pain is coming your way and it hurts and it's shocking. And it's something that I need to express shock over or, uh, you know, you know, my, my concern over it. It's, it's not some thing that he's relishing the judgment that's coming. It's, it's, it's woe like this, this hurts and it's hurts because this is, this is your condition and, it, and it's serious. It's a serious thing full of, um, we should have sobriety related to it. And it just reminds us just how bad they were off. And remember, these men, it's so easy to forget how respected they were in the culture. They were lifted up so high. It wasn't that they were trying to get the people to respect them. They already did respect them. They looked up to them. They were, and they were so prideful because of all these things that he's talking about. They were so prideful. And here he is and comes and says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And you know, the people will just go, what? What did he just say? Woe? I don't even have to hear anything else. What's coming? Just the fact that he would say woe to them? They should be saying woe about me. I'm 10 billion times less righteous than these guys. And, and, and it's, it's just shocking to them. But he says, hypocrites. Now many of us know the word hypocrite means actor. It's brought straight from the Greek language, uh, transliterated into, into English. And so they would wear masks. 
You know, you've seen sometimes those classical plays and so forth, and they wear masks. That's that. That's what they would do to be able to have char- different characters and all these things. And so it means to wear a mask, literally. And so the Pharisees being hypocrites, and that's the seventh characteristic, is that Pharisees are hypocrites. They're hypocritical. Uh, they're actors. And before I go any further about what hypocrisy is, I want to talk about first what it's not. Because some in the church struggle with being a hypocrite and being a part of God's people in the sense of fellowship because they're struggling because they don't want to be a hypocrite. And I want to clear something up right now. When you're struggling, because we all are struggling, it's a big newsflash, and maybe you didn't know that, we're all struggling, we're all battling, we're all falling short every day. The standard is still perfection. Even after we become, we know the standard is perfection. We get saved and we realize we can't meet that standard and we can't be good enough. We accept Christ's death on our, on our behalf. And then we forget that the standard is still perfection. Holiness is still, I mean, God is still perfect. So we fall short way more than we like to admit to ourselves or even think about or whatever. We should be confessing our sins regularly because we fall short regularly. So when we are struggling, sometimes people say, and I will get calls and I will talk to people and they'll say, you know, I've been struggling. I'm, I don't want to really come to church. I don't want to be a hypocrite. Well, this is how you're a hypocrite if you're struggling or dealing with something. It's if you come to church and you're acting as if you're doing amazingly and, and you're acting like you're doing great and there's nothing wrong and you won't open up to people about your struggles or ask for prayer or any of those things and you act like everything's great but inside you're doing horribly and you're you know struggling the whole week that's being a hypocrite but coming to the hospital and saying i have a broken leg no one says they're being a hypocrite but they go to the hospital with a broken leg and they're pretending like their leg's not broken then they're being a hypocrite so that's the difference so you need to fall towards the lord when you're struggling not fall away the enemy wants us to be sequestered away from the body of Christ. He knows that's when we're the most vulnerable. So when you're struggling, that's even more reason to be consistent and faithful and be among God's people because that's where you get the help. It's like, I don't want to go to the hospital. I'm maimed right now, <laughs> but I don't want to go to the hospital and be a hypocrite because what are they going to think? Well, they're going to think that you belong here because you're maimed and you need medical help. That's how it, that's how it is. But we don't think that. I don't want to go there. What are the nurses and doctors going to think? I'm sick. You know, what are the people going to think? I'm sick. I'm in the emergency room. They're going to think that you need care. But we think, oh no, I can't do that because that's a place where everybody has it together. Well, then you misunderstood the whole purpose of why we come together. It's to help each other. We're all struggling. We're all falling short. And we're supposed to be gracious and loving and forgiving and patient and prayerful for one another. And so that's, that's what he's aiming at for us to be honest and open. But also, related to unbelievers, we have to be honest and not hypocrite. Act like we don't, we don't sin. We're basically perfect. I don't know if you knew that. You're going to work and saying that to them. I don't know if you know this, but I'm generally perfect. You wouldn't say that, but that's how we can act when we never tell or share our struggles or whatever. Or, you know, I'm, you know, and that's, what do people say? Their church is full of hypocrites. And, and I know that most of that is just a, to deflect their, their, you know, anyone dealing with their own issues, but there's a lot of truth to that. There are a lot of hypocrites in the church. And the, and the solution is to just be honest and open and have an environment where people can be open with their struggles and, and so forth. So very important. Then he says, For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. So the eighth characteristic is that we make it harder for people to go to heaven. 
by our hypocrisy. And, and that's what God doesn't want. He wants people to have a good example of what it looks like to be a Christian. A needy Christian. A Christian that needs God's grace. A Christian that needs the body of Christ to be strong. A Christian that admits their shortcomings. That's honest and transparent with their struggles. Those are the things that an unbeliever can see and like, wow, they still need Jesus. Do you portray at work or at school that you don't need Jesus anymore? You needed Him for salvation, but you have that now, and now you really don't need Him anymore on a daily basis. We should be communicating by how we are among them in our words and our things that we do and everything as, I need Jesus every day. I need Jesus every day. He's not a crutch. He's a hospital. You know, I, I need Him completely every single day. So I just think of John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace. You know, he was on a slave ship before he became a Christian. So he never forgot that he was a, a wretch. God saved a wretch like me. And when we remember what, how far we've come, always, we always keep that in our minds. It helps us to be more open and honest with people and remind them that we need Jesus every day. Apart from Christ, I'm still without hope. I need Christ every single day. Verse 14, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. The ninth characteristic is that Pharisees are self-serving. Take advantage of people. They see people as a means to an end. They would help these widows and, and go be a part of their, you know, their, their need and so forth, but then they would get what they could get from them. And, and that's horrible. Just think about that. Widows, especially in that culture, and that's why God tells the church to be very engaged with widows and orphans because they're in need, but even more so then because there was no government assistance. There was nothing. It was just when you lost your husband, you lost a way to, for your family to have money. And so they would come in and they would take advantage of them, but also they would make these long prayers. Jesus talked about that. These babblings and these, they think they'll be heard by their many words and so forth. And again, it's more to be seen and more to look spiritual and, um, you know, we can pray in King James English. We can do all kinds of stuff that makes us look more spiritual than, uh, you know, than we really are. And God loves just help. That's a great prayer. Help. You ever just said that as a prayer? It's one of the best prayers that you can pray. Help. I mean, what would you say to your, your dad or your mom? You wouldn't say, well, amazing father, you know, and all this long thing, you know, please bring assistance when you, you know, it's acute need. I need assistance acutely or what all this. You just say, help, dad, help me. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. But to pray to be impressed, people to be impressed with me or any of those things or, or worse yet, think that you can uh, impress God is, is horrific and God doesn't want it. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much the son of hell as yourselves. Wow. Number 10, you add to God's Word with man-made rules that don't help anybody. And that's what they would do. They would travel so far. Now, related to coming into Judaism, if it wasn't you weren't born into it and didn't, you know, all of that, you could either be a God-fearer or a proselyte. And... You'd be a God-fearer if you started going to synagogue and all of that, and you would, you know, Cornelius was an example in the book of Acts as a God-fearer. As a centurion, he wasn't a proselyte. 
And when you cross the line, you become circumcised, you obey the feasts and all those things. It's more serious, more, you know. So he's saying you're basically winning one convert uh, and then you, you, you make them worse off than what they were before. So how do we as believers make people off worse off after they've been, in, you know, engaging us? We make them worse off by not telling them the truth. And, and some of that comes in the form of adding to their false sense of security. Just because someone tells you they're a Christian doesn't mean they're a Christian. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. And you have to ask, well, you know, what does that mean to you? Well, it means I was born in America. So I'm a Christian. It means that, well, I was, you know, I believe in God. Oh, you believe in God. Okay. A lot of people believe in God. The Jews believed in God. That wasn't good enough. Or why did Christ have to come then? So what does that mean? Well, I, you know, I'm religious. That's why I'm a Christian. Oh, well, they're, they're religious before Christ. That didn't, that wasn't good enough. What, why, why are you a Christian? Well, uh, you know, I go to church. The Jews went to church. They went to synagogue every time. Wasn't good enough to go to heaven. See, you have to ask those questions. What does it mean? And, and, and see, are they born again? Have they had their sins forgiven? Have they repented? All those things. Because if we don't and we accept their initial little thing that they're a Christian, and I'm not saying to be obnoxious with asking these questions or anything, but if we accept that and they're not a Christian and then we keep treating them like that and like give them this security that they're okay with God when really they're not, then haven't we made them worse off? We've actually made them think that they're on their way to heaven and, and they may not be. So we have to be very careful with that. But mainly, our, our lives need to look like Christ. Our lives need to be an example and so forth. We can't add man-made rules uh, to anything related to God's Word. Now he gets into this long thing between 16 and 22. Let's read it. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold and whoever swears by the altar it is nothing but whoever because he's quoting them now but whoever swears by the gift that is on it he is obliged to perform it fools and blind for which is greater the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift therefore he who swears by the altar swears by it and all things on it he who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it and he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of god and by him who sits on it so they're, they're, this is all about oaths. And they were really big into oaths. And, and, and so they would say, your oath is important if these gifts and these things that had material value were associated with it. If you make an oath with those things associated with it, then you're bound. But if you just make them without those things, then they're not, they're not binding. And he's just saying that's ridiculous because those things have value because what they're associated with. Not them, they, them, they in and of themselves in a spiritual sense. And so they're trying to find, and really the broader application is loopholes. They're trying to find loopholes to these things. And that's, you know, that's not, God doesn't wanting a loophole relationship you know, where we try to find ways around his word and, and make exceptions. And we've looked at that before when they wouldn't prepare, uh, provide for their family, their parents when they were older because the money they said that was set aside, they had committed to the Lord. And so they couldn't help provide for their parents. And he's saying that's horrible, horrible example. So Jesus said, you remember on the Sermon on the Mount when we looked at it, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond that is of the devil. So 
he backs that up. And then he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guide to strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. So they would be so legalistic about giving even their herbs you know, nine for me, one for you, God. Nine for me, one for you. Is like the the whole thing, and and they were neglecting all. And Jesus says, "See, there's weightier matters of the law." Remember, the context is the law. They're trying to obey the law of Moses, so they're into all this stuff, and they're trying to show everybody else how obedient they are to these things. And so they would, you know, part of that would be were being concerned about if they swallowed. A gnat, you know, they would strain their wine or their drinks or whatever to make sure a gnat didn't get in there. In the law, in Leviticus, I think it's chapter 11, the, a gnat and a camel, both were unclean animals. So they would strain what they drank to make sure no gnat got in so they wouldn't be ceremonial unclean, but yet they would neglect all the other things that God really put a, a heavy premium on in the law. And he says what they are there, justice, mercy, and faith. So the 11th characteristic is they were majoring on the minors and ignoring God's emphasis on the heart. And these things are important. And that's why you know, we always focus on the heart here. Heart. Engaging God with our heart. God looks at the outward appearance, but uh, I mean, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Samuel had to learn this the hard way related to choosing the next king of Israel. And so God looks at our heart and we could have all these outward things going, but have our heart be a million miles away from God. And they needed to have justice and mercy and faith. Those were weightier than all these other things, all these other rituals and all of those things. He's saying, if you're going to try to obey the law, you need to do all of it. You can't do some of it. You have to do all of it, including having those heart things be obeyed as well. Verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be clean also. The twelfth characteristic is that there's an emphasis on external holiness. And I'd like to, you to imagine for a moment someone coming over your house. Now, when I was a bachelor... My, I haven't even started yet. When I was a bachelor, my dishes were quite interesting. How they became like a science experiment, pretty much all the time. And you know, I would just throw the dishes out eventually. It would just get so bad. Um, I've come a long way. Thank, thank, thank the Lord. But uh, imagine if your dishes were disgusting and that you know they get bad at times with all of us but they got really bad and you had company come over it was something really someone really really important and and to prepare you just clean the outside of your cups they were filled with mold and all this you clean the outside the dishes you clean the underneath the dishes but you didn't clean the surface and all these things and then you served a meal and you presented those things to them with the inside filthy and the outside clean. How ridiculous would that be? How scary would that be for the person that's coming over to, to enjoy a nice lunch and everything? Well, that's what they were doing spiritually to God. They were offering up themselves filthy on the inside, but outwardly they looked great. 
And we love to put this focus on external appearances and external holiness. A lot of legalism, man-made rules are related to external things. You know, back in the day when you got saved, they'd rush you in the back room, wash off your makeup if you're a man or a woman, but mainly a woman, you know, uh, and they take off your makeup and you would have to do your hair differently and you couldn't, you know, wear pants. You had to wear skirts and all this stuff and all this external holiness that God doesn't put any emphasis on. He doesn't care about that. I've always wore jeans and people have come in here just so offended at times in the past. Like, what? You're supposed to be in a suit and tie and all those things. I mean, think of the hippies getting saved in in, in the 60s with Pastor Chuck and just, I mean, they just focused on the heart, focused on the true thing that's important, our spiritual condition, our heart. And he would say that the outside will take care of itself. And you look at those guys now and, those cal- and they don't look like hippies anymore, you know, but God didn't care when they did. He's just focused on the heart. It's, it's so important for us to focus on the inside and not the outside. So, that means we need to be confessing our sins to the Lord. First John 1 John 1.9, the Christian bar of soap. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My positional standing doesn't change with God, but my fellowship with Him and my interaction with Him is going to be affected by me not confessing my sins and not repenting and so forth. And we all need to do that. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, when you come into Israel, especially on the Mount of Olives and all of that, there's a lot of tombs. And Zechariah had some prophecies that affected why they put tombs there and the resurrection and so forth. But then later, in the Valley of Jehoshaphat, uh, the Kidron Valley there, they, they, the Arabs put tombs there because they knew that Jews could not touch a dead body and didn't want to step on tombs. And so they knew that the prophecies talked about the, the Messiah coming and touching down on the Mount of Olives and coming down to proclaim himself to be the Messiah, uh, likely coming through the Eastern Gate, which is there. And so they thought, we'll get in the way of that. We'll put some tombs right in front of the Eastern Gate so the Messiah can't come back or can't, I don't know what the thinking was as if Jesus couldn't just float right over the top of those and then go through the, the Eastern gate, but they would whitewash tombs. So to make sure that you wouldn't step on a tomb. And so they would put whitewash on them and, and, and so forth. And when, so what Jesus is doing is saying that outwardly, you're just like these tombs. You're great outwardly. You're white, been washed on the outside. Everything looks great on the outside, but inside you are rotten and you are just decaying death inside, especially spiritually, because apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. So of course, he's, I mean, they'd be shocked to hear this. I mean, the whole society thought these guys were the superstars, the spiritual superstars. Verse 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Now, verse the 13th one is unique to them in that sense, that they were guilty of, of murder. Because they had said, we would never, ever do that. But yet they're applauding his death at the moment. The one that all those prophets pointed to. 
And they would adorn their graves and so forth and, and, and all of that and say, we love our prophets and all of that, but they, their, their fathers murdered the prophets. And that's what the, the children of Israel would do because God would convict them of their sin and they would hate what God was saying. So the solution is, we'll just kill them, the messenger. And so then we don't have to hear the message anymore as if that's going to get them out of things and God's still going to bring judgment on them. So, so they were guilty of that. Now look at what Jesus said to them beginning in verse 31. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I sent you prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge, means whipping, in your synagogues and persecute from city to city that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So this is one of the strongest rebukes he ever uttered to them. And so there is going to judgment is coming. The temple would be destroyed in AD 70, which we'll get to a little later. But there's going to be judgment there on them. And he says, and this is his heart. We see we start to see his heart really come out and the origins of why he said what he said to them in verses 37 through 39. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me. So it links himself to how it's desolate. No more till I till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So we, now we see what they're going to say in his second coming when he comes back and proclaims himself to be the Messiah. They're going to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But look in verse 37, how tender, how he expresses himself as a as a, a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But notice the last part of verse 37. But you were not willing. Wait a minute. What about, you know, maybe they weren't one of the elect or what? No, they, you were not willing. That was the problem. They were not willing. They could have repented, but they chose not to repent. Jesus said about the Pharisees, they wouldn't be guilty unless I had done the things that I did among them. They're guilty. It's not that they couldn't believe. It's that they wouldn't believe. And it's true for anybody. When they've heard the gospel and so forth, if they reject it, they're rejecting it because they are they don't want to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, compelling them to receive Christ and repent. Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel in Mark chapter one. Paul said in Acts 17, God has called all men, all men, all men, all men. He has called all men everywhere to repent. How could he call all, all men everywhere to repent if not all men could repent? It, it makes no sense. So he says, you would, you were not willing. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. There's a handful of times in the scriptures where God repeats the name over and over again. Absalom, Absalom, Moses, Moses. It's a deep heart cry. This whole chapter is misunderstood without understanding God's heart and tone revealed in this last part. He was still trying to reach the Pharisees. He was still trying to expose their hearts so that they could see it and repent. And some did. Look at Acts 15. 
Some were there that were part of the sect of the Pharisees, but they believed. He reached some of them here. Don't think that they all went to hell. They didn't. Many of them repented and turned to Christ. Don't give up on somebody. Never, ever, ever give up on somebody. They could have given up on me many, many times. And I remained on that Holy Ghost hit list. And they were praying for me and praying for me. And finally, my sisters, after 10 years, I, they started when I was 10. That's pretty bad. <laughs> You're 10 and they're going, save that kid, please. You know, And they're interceding. And, and 10 years and finally, finally, finally received Christ. No, Proverbs 27 verse 5 tells us what Jesus is doing here. It says, open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. He's openly rebuking them because He cares about them and He wants them to turn. And that's why He says, I wanted, how often I wanted. But God's a gentleman. He won't force Himself on people. And when they're not willing, they're not willing. We keep praying for them. We keep reaching out to them. But we can't force people to make the right decision. Let's pray together. Father, make us into the men and women that You have called us to be. We pray, Lord, we'd be good representations of You in this world. That we would point people to You. That we would have humility. That we would serve. That we wouldn't seek after anything out of selfish ambition. That we wouldn't desire titles. That we wouldn't um, misguide people and put man-made rules on them. That we would be servants. That we would be humble before You and other people and make their lives better. That we would be great priests and priestesses to the world and represent the world, God, you to the world and, and, and be able to be good examples. And I pray there wouldn't be a hint of hypocrisy. And I pray that you would encourage everyone here that struggles with being around your people when they fail, that they need to come and be around the things of you when they're at their worst, because that's when they get help the most from you in many ways. And we, we love, Lord, what you're doing in our church. We pray that you protect it and guard against anything that would get in the way of what you're doing. We're delighted at what you're doing. Keep us usable. Keep us humble. Help us to not try to help you out or get in your way. Lord, you said you'd build your church and we want to, we want to see you build it so that you get all the glory. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.